on. That's funny. <laughs> That's funny. I mean, she's pretty and all. Don't get me wrong, but... <laughs> Well, hey, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Rick. I'm the lead pastor here. Uh, glad to have you with us this morning. Um, if you are, if you're here because this was the Father's Day present to your dad, um, let me just assure you, the uh, all of your concerns and, and fears about Christianity were, were uh, fulfilled last week. So uh, you can go back and listen to that one. Glad you're here. Hey, for those of you who were uh, praying for, um, for our denominational general assembly, remember last week I asked you guys to pray that it would be boring? Hey, it was. And so um, that's awesome, right? Uh, there were actually some, some pretty uh, important decisions made. I'll write a little bit about those in our newsletter this week just to let you know uh, for those of you who might be interested and, and even for those of you who, frankly, aren't. It's good to know uh, where we're going as a denomination because... Um, and I need this reminder all the time, um, the local church, for many of us, UPC is the only experience that the Presbyterian Church in America will, will probably have, right? And that's great. But the reality is, is that because we have that P in our name, Presbyterian, we are connectional, which means we're connected to other churches, other churches here in Orlando and other churches across the country. And, and so um, it's not, we're not just the local church, we're a larger one. And so we need to you know, we're a family. Every family's got crazy uncles, and uh, we're somebody's crazy uncle, and, and it's good to be connected, okay? Um, so, uh, if you've been here, you know that we've been talking about freedom and the fact that the, the, the boast of Christianity and its bold claim is that, Christ, the, the, that faith in Jesus actually makes us free. And I know that's weird because for many of us, the idea of Christianity in particular, religion in general, is like, it's about restriction, it's about trying to, um, you know, kind of get things under control. It's not about freedom. And some of that is because we have come to associate freedom with the concept that we can do whatever we want, whenever we want. But that is not entirely what freedom is, is it? Your car is not free to run on Prosecco, right? It's not. Um, a fish is not free to climb out of the sea. I know, I know. Some of you are like, no, there are some. I get it, all right? But my degree is in divinity, not biology, all right? Um, and, and we are free in all of life, not just not just as humans, but all, all things are free when we are, we, when we are able to be what we were meant to be, right? And so um, uh, last week we talked about the fact that um, the last couple of sermons and, and this week, especially as we move on, have been turning a corner for this early Christian leader named Paul who wrote this letter to these churches in southern Turkey because he's gone from uh, talking about who we are to now talking about what, we're, what we are to be. Okay, and so, um, and so last week we looked at what we've been freed from. This week we look to what we've been freed for. Okay, so if you have your place in Galatians 5, you've got a Bible in front of you. If not, um, I'll be reading it uh, so you can just follow along. Why don't we stand in honor of God's word? It's our habit here. I'm going to be reading Galatians 5 verses 22 through 20. 
6. Now, before I do this, for many of us in this room, not all of us, but for many of us in this room, the verses that I'm about to read are dreadfully familiar. And I say dreadfully because that means that for some of us, we are going to check out as soon as I start reading. Because you could recite this, and I know many of you could probably recite this without even looking at your Bible. I get it. The danger in that is that when we kind of check out, what we do is we, we close ourselves off to the fact that Jesus wants to use this right now. And in fact, he wants to speak to you right now and to me right now. And maybe in ways that you're, you haven't been spoken to in this passage before. So let's try it here again for the first time, okay? Galatians 5, to 26. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another and envying one another. God's word given for our flourishing. Would you pray with me? Uh, Jesus, uh, speak to us now. We are in danger of falling into a trap this morning, whether it's by uh, thinking that this has nothing to do with us or thinking that, um, that we can do this. <laughs> and so, Lord, help us. Remind us of the gospel. And produce in us this kind of fruit. Even, even this morning as we sit here, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Have a seat. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to jump right in this morning uh, because we have so much to cover. Um, and my wife went over her time. And um, <laughs> actually, I don't think she did. She did a great job. Uh, but uh, and, but this, is an, this is an important week because, like I said a few minutes ago, for many of us, this is, this is a very familiar passage, but we tend to misappropriate it, which is to say that we tend to um, try and apply it in ways that aren't helpful. Uh, for others of us here in this room, we're confused about what a Christian is supposed to look like because we have images in our media, you know, some of us grew up on The Simpsons. That's dating myself at that point. But some of us did, and we think that being a Christian is like being Ned Flanders. And so it's like if everything is kind of supposed to be nice and hey diddly do, and that, that's about it. But we don't know what it's supposed to be. What, what does a Christian look like? And Paul tells us this week. You know, last week I said that change in a Christian is expected. It's not optional. It, it, it is expected. But because, not, not so that we can get God's smile, but because we have it, because the Holy Spirit dwells in us. That was last week. You can go back and listen to that. We'll cover some of that again. But what does that change look like? What have we been freed for? That's the question we take to the passage this week. And so we're going to just look at uh, two points this morning. Okay, and there's an outline in your worship guide if that's helpful to you. But it's also uh, going to be up here. We're going to look at a picture of change in the process. All right? So let's begin with the picture. Um, what I want to do this week is make much of this metaphor that Paul uses. And the reason for that is because in the Western mind, and, and we are part of the, the West culturally, we have very little patience for metaphor, right? It's the same way that most of us, not all of us, I know some of you are very cultured, but most of us have very little patience for poetry, right? Right? We like things to be direct. 
We like to be told things. We don't like to have to think on them, ponder them, think about how that image actually applies to something. We, we don't like to do that, right? But, but Paul uses a very rich metaphor to talk about change in our lives. Look down at verse 22. He says, the fruit of the Spirit. And this is important. These kind of botanical images are normal in Christianity, right? Jesus used them. I'm the vine, you're the branches. And then he doesn't really, he, he kind of talks a little bit about that, but doesn't explain all the implications. He just kind of moves on. This is kind of normal. We kind of can understand them in the whole, but we overlook them, I think, a lot of times. And Paul is making a definite distinction here. The fruit of the Spirit is in distinction to what we talked about last week, the works of the flesh. And if you'll remember, some of you are here, you remember that the works of the flesh are things that we do out of our, um, our nature that's kind of bent towards independence from God. These are these things that we do. But the distinction is with fruit that is born in our lives through the Spirit. And so as we look at this, I want to simply begin by talking about three aspects of this picture. I want to look at the nature of the picture, the character of it, and its counterfeits. Okay? So like I said, uh, the Western mind, we've, we've been hesitant to think about metaphors. We don't really like them. Um, but to see these, the characteristics that, that Paul is trying to communicate, like when we, when we look at this idea of these, this list of love and joy and peace and patience, and kindness, that's awesome. But what does it mean that Paul calls these fruit? Fruit. So I, I want to I engage with that. Fruit grows Internally, it grows consistently, it grows inevitably, and it grows uniformly, okay? So four ways as we're exploring this metaphor that the fact that we have fruit in our lives and how it grows is important. It grows inevitably, it grows uh, internally, consistently, and uniformly, okay? So first, internally. So that should go without saying, right? Fruit comes from inside a branch, right? You don't don't kind of tack fruit onto the end of a branch, it kind of comes from the branch, a growth of plants come from inside. So for Paul to talk about Christian change in terms of fruit means that he expects Christian change to be done from the inside out. It's something that happens internally and moves out. And, and this should not surprise you if you've been here any amount of time at UPC in the last seven months. Because over and over and over again, I've been talking about the fact from the scriptures, so it's not my idea, that that our problem as people is not our behavior. That our problem is our hearts, and from our hearts comes our behavior, right? And so if that's the case, if that's where the problem is, then we should expect that the fruit of the Spirit, and we'll get to exactly what that is in a second, that that is going to come from the heart out too, right? That would only make sense. You know, again, to use biblical language, like, we, we, we do things, we do bad things, we do sinful things because we are sinners, not vice versa. We don't become sinners because we do sinful things, right? So if, if our change is going to happen, that's going to happen in the same way. It has to start at our hearts and move out. So it's, it's internal. Second, it's also consistent. And what I mean by this is that fruit grows slowly. Now, I don't have fruit trees in my yard it's Florida. I know a lot of you do, okay? Um, and, and there's a lot of citrus and all this stuff. When I was in Virginia, the only kind of fruit that really grew in Virginia well was apple trees. And if you want to have an apple tree in yard and it was going to make good fruit, it was going to be hideous and look ugly, and I wasn't into that. So, um, uh, 
So, but I'm not a fruit guy, but I am a yard guy, okay? Please don't come to my house and, and judge me on that right now. I just moved in. I'm getting started. Just give me a break. Um, okay, but here's the thing. I can't look at, I can't go home, or how, how about this? I can't leave the house on Sunday morning to come here and then go back to the house Sunday afternoon and see the growth in my grass, Okay? I can't do that. I mean, I know, again, Florida, it grows fast, but it doesn't grow that fast. However, a week after I cut it, or rather, my son Andrew cuts it, because he does the lawn now, um, that's why I had boys, uh, it, it's, I can see that growth really well, and that's what we're getting at here. Christian growth is not overnight, and I know we've all heard the stories, and maybe some of you are a part of those stories of like, you became a Christian, you threw away that addiction or that bad habit, and you never look back again, but for most of us, That change comes slowly, far more slowly than most of us are comfortable with. It comes slowly, and because it's in us, it is most easily seen by those outside of us, okay? So it's internal, it's consistent, it's also inevitable. Here's what I mean. Did you notice how this fruit is described? It's not the fruit of the believer, it's not the fruit of the Christian. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And in the original, in the, in the, the original language that this was written in, that, that idea is one of ownership, that the Spirit owns this fruit. That it's His fruit. And that means that it's not something that is kind of like you as a Christian can or cannot do. The Spirit is the one who does this. It will come. Now, let me camp here for a minute because this is important to hold in tension with our last point. There's a little bit of an older argument. I don't think this argument is still as active, at least not in the ways in which it was probably 30 years ago. But there's an old argument of whether or not you can have Jesus as Savior without having him as Lord. See, I knew some of you. Yeah, you remember this. Can you have Jesus as Savior and not as Lord? And what that really meant was, if I come down the aisle and I pray a prayer and go live my life however I did, I'm good, right? That's what that meant. If I have an emotional experience in a youth group, uh, mission trip or, or camp or something like that, and I walk down the aisle, but I have nothing to do with Jesus the rest of my life, well, I have Jesus as Savior, I just don't have him as Lord. It doesn't really do any change. Well, the Bible actually says this is impossible, okay? And, and this right here is why. When you place your faith in Jesus, the Bible says that you become a home for God. A home for God. That sounds weird. That that God, as Christians understand him, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three gods, or three gods, nope, nope, nix that, don't send that to Presbytery, all right? One God, three persons, whoo, almost got in trouble there. One God, three persons, that God the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you, okay, and begins work in you. So yes, that change may be slow, it may be gradual, but it does happen. This makes sense because things that are alive produce fruit. If they don't, it's a sign that something is wrong. Right? It's a sign that something's wrong. Now, again, that doesn't mean that it's going to happen overnight. Like you place your faith in Jesus and all of a sudden you never struggle with anything. If that's true, then all of us are in trouble. And first of all, the one up here. Because that's not the way my life is. It does mean that we will change if we actually have saving faith. Okay? 
Lastly, Christian change is uniform. Hmm. This is commonly missed when you look at this. So let me put, uh, you know, make this point. Did you notice that Paul does not say the word fruit in the plural? Right? He doesn't say the fruits of the Spirit, and here are all the possible ways in which you can grow. He says fruit, and then he gives you a bunch of aspects. It's as if, it's as if he was talking about an apple and described like the fruit of this tree is red and sweet and yummy and round. Right? You wouldn't go, oh, look at, there's the round, there's the round fruit, and over here's the red one, and over here's the yummy one. No, you'd go, that's the way to describe the fruit. This is important. Paul's not making a mistake. This is not a list from which you can pick and choose, right? I know some of us do this. Well, I'm pretty loving, but I struggle with patience. What? How can you be loving and not patient, right? Like, uh, th- like, how can you say, well, I'm really loving with someone and not patient? If you're loving but not patient, good but not gentle, self-controlled but not humble, Paul says that's not Christian change. These things go together. This is fruit, not fruits. And this is because there are ways in which we can seem to have some of these, but not as the Bible would define them. And we'll get into that in a second, okay? These must go together, all right? So, again, it is internal Okay? It is consistent, it is, it, it is inevitable, and it is uniform. Now that said, let's look at the fruit itself, shall we? Okay? This is the character of the fruit. We need to see uh, this because of how we often mistake some of these. First, in this list, he gives us love. Now, the love, the way the Bible defines it, is not love the way we generally think of it. And here's where some of you are expecting me to say, love's a verb. Um, and yes, it is. But when our culture talks about love, it's talking about some kind of affection, which love has a part of it, it is affection. But, but overall, especially given, again, and I know some of you have been Christians a long time, you're like, there's three words for love in the Bible, and it's da-da-da. <laughs> Christian love is defined primarily by the work of Jesus, like how Jesus loved. This is love, not that he, not we love God, that he first loved us. And the way that love functioned was that it sought after the flourishing of another. That's what Christian love is. It is the thing that, it is the way in which we pursue someone else's flourishing, often at cost to ourself. Okay? And it's to do this not because of what they can give you, but simply because of who they are. So that's, that's love. The second is joy. Joy is a kind of um, satisfaction based on God, not based on your circumstances. Okay? In other words, it's based on him and not what he's doing for you. That's joy. Then there's peace. Peace in this context has a lot to do with just kind of resting in the sovereignty and goodness of God. The fourth is patience. Some of your, some of your Bibles say long-suffering. It, it, it means being able to, well, suffer long, to kind of bear with things, uh, to bear with uh, the kind of hostility and suffering without resentment towards God and others. Okay? Then we have kindness, which in the Bible has to do with serving others from a place of vulnerability. It's, it's, a, it's not just being nice. It's, it's, um, kindness has to do with reaching out to people from a place in which it's possible that they, you might receive harm. That's kindness, okay? 
then there's goodness. Another way of saying that is integrity. Goodness is about who you are when no one's looking. Okay, not who you are in church, but who you are when you're at home or who, who you are when, uh, when you, know, you, you travel for business and you're out of town and no one's around you. The seventh term is faithfulness, which doesn't necessarily mean faith in Jesus in this context so much as faithfulness towards others. In other words, being reliable to your word. When you say something, that's what happens. Next is gentleness or humility. It means dealing with others without a sense of superiority. And then lastly, self-control. Okay, obviously, self-control means controlling yourself. But it, specifically, and this is a big one in the Bible, uh, and hard, especially if you're a younger man in this room, of which one day I hope to be an older man that doesn't struggle with this. But as, like, it seems that Paul especially, but the Bible as a whole, seems to tell us that young men in particular seem to need to, like self-control is a big deal, okay? It is reigning in, reigning in our desires, so that you can order needs and wants accurately. You're not enslaved to every impulse that enters your heart or your mind. Okay? Now, let me say a couple of things before we move off of this. And one thing is about why, why these things and not others. Okay? Well, like last week, if you remember last week, works of the flesh. We said that list was um, true, but not comprehensive. In other words, it's not as if those are the only works of the flesh. It was just, the, here's the ones I'm going to list. The same is true here. Okay? This, is, this is not a comprehensive list, but it is true. But the reason why these things are the fruit of the Spirit is because all of these things are things that are used to describe God. So the fruit of the Spirit in you and in me is meant to be conforming us to his image, making us more and more like Jesus. Because these are all ways that God is described in the Bible. He loves, he delights in his own glory, he's at peace, he's got great patience. It's one of the things that he's constantly described as. He serves those who hate him, or who hate him. He's always true to his word. He's humble enough to become flesh in Jesus. He's clearly self-controlled. This is about renewing us in his image. Okay, that's what the character of this fruit is. Now, let's hit the counterfeits. Because this is important. But it is uncomfortable. See, this is why it's so important to understand that this is a uniform process. Because you, by your very personality, may be very jovial. Right? You may just be a rather outgoing, happy person. Very pleasant to be around. Nothing wrong with that. But that is not the same as joy. Why? Because you can be very jovial, but not very faithful. Not very true to your word. Not very patient. The Spirit of God does not come to turn you into an extrovert. Sorry, extroverts. But it's true. He doesn't come to turn you into an extrovert. He comes to make you joyful. You may seem patient, but in reality, you're not really patient. You're just cynical. You're disconnected, right? It's not that you have long patience to wait for something to happen. It's that you are cynical in believing it will ever happen in the first place. It's not patience, right? It's not patience at all. It's cynicism, which is just a, it's like hopelessness of the latte. It's just cool, but it's not, it's not like actual patience, you may, be, you may seem loving, but instead you're simply accepting. 
And accepting isn't the same as loving. Accepting is, is I, I suppose it's love without faithfulness or goodness. If you have self-control but no humility, that's not from the Spirit. That's because you have, an, you, have, you have a set of values that say that I would rather not do these behaviors than look like someone who does. It's not self-control. It's just you care about the, this looking good rather than these things. It comes from pride. Do you see this? I'll say it again. If you think you're loving but have no patience, you're not loving. If you think you're gentle, but you don't ever confront someone in their sin, you're not gentle. You're, either, you're, you're just conf, conflict avoidant. And it's probably because, frankly, your life, my life, if, we're, if that's us, our lives are a mess and, and we're scared someone's going to point that out if we confront them. Oh yeah, well, what about you? Well, I don't want that. If you seem peaceful, but you have no joy, you're cynical. It's not peace, it's cynicism. So you don't expect too much and then get hurt. That's not, that's not peace. That isn't godly. This kind of change that Paul's talking about is symmetrical. It's like a diamond. Each facet of a diamond, it doesn't give you a different gem. It's just a different view on the same gem. Humility leads to love and to patience. Love leads to faithfulness and to gentleness. Self-control leads to humility and peace. The rest of it is simply counterfeit. It's just a false fruit. It's not real. I said this last week, but let me say it again. These changes are essential to the Christian life. Okay? So if you, and, and frankly, more than you, if, if people that know you well, right, members of your life group, people you do life with, you know, things like that, if, if they don't see these things, what I am not saying is it's impossible for you to be a Christian. What I'm saying is we might want to raise a flag. That's all. Just raise a flag. Start wondering. Maybe what I've been doing is I've just been coming to church, singing about Jesus, and then going and being good. Maybe it's not the faith I thought it was. The fruit of the Spirit being in us is these things, okay? All right, so that's what change is supposed to look like, but how, right? Because, man, I just said all that, and some of us are incredibly overwhelmed right now. Because you thought, you came in here thought you were doing good. Thought you were doing all right. But now, maybe not so much. So how is it that we change? Well, the process is actually laid out here. Uh, believe it or not, in this text, we have eyes to see it. Look at verse 23. Paul says first, he says, that against these things, there is no law. And here he goes again. Last week, he did the same thing. He was right in the middle of talking about something that seemed completely unrelated. And he dropped this comment about the law. And you're like, why does he keep dropping this comment about the law right in the middle of the passage? Well, here's what he means. He means you can't legislate these things. You can't legislate them. Ultimately, what he means is you cannot change from the outside in, right? Again, think with me. Most of us believe that we change by behavioral change. I will practice being patient. <sighs> we white knuckle it. We're practicing. I'm being patient. Being patient with you kids, like that's what we do. It's Father's Day, let's be honest, all right? Being patient. But the fruit that he's talking about here pushes against that because it deals with internal categories. The law 
right? The, the, the rules are at best, at best, external categories. What they do is they restrain us, they don't change us. That's what rules do. They restrain us, they don't change us, right? They're meant to hold us back, and some of them, some of us, they hold back better than others because some of us are worried about the consequences more than others are, but that's, that's the way rules law does. But again, think with me about the metaphor. If you tape fruit onto a tree, it doesn't make it alive, right? Fruit does not make the tree alive. Fruit is the result of a living tree. In the same way, trying to simply, I'm not going to lay out all behavioral change stuff, but to simply behaviorally change this way cannot work. Paul says these things cannot be legislated. And you know this, you know this because you've tried it. And it's just not working. I'm just going to work on being more loving. How's that working? You doing good? I'm going to work on being more patient. I'm going to I'm going to work on uh, being more gentle. And you may be on the outside, you're able to be gentle. On the inside, you're a raging inferno, right? Raging fire. Let Let me remind us why this is. The Bible says that you and I are alienated from God by nature. In other words, it's what we are. It's not what we do. We weren't made that way. It's what happened to us in the garden. We can, we can change what we do, but we cannot change what we are. We can't do that. Our problem is not that we aren't good enough. It's that we are driven to independence from God. We want to find our satisfaction apart from him, so we run to things that we think are going to fill us. We want to find our status apart from him, so we try and find something that's going to make us what we think is going to be good. We, we want to find our safety apart from him, and so we, we run to things that we think will be able to uh, keep us uh, secure in life, right? Every one of these things, the problem is we are the ones doing it. We are the ones doing it. It's for us, for ourselves, and that is our problem. Just doing behavior change is simply prettying up the outside when the issue is internal. This is what Jesus was talking about when he, when he for those of you who might be familiar with this, when he talked to this group of Jewish folks that were called Pharisees, and he said, you are like whitewashed tombs. You look pretty on the outside, but you got bones drying up on the inside. You're dead on the inside, but you, I get it. You look pretty. Looks real nice. And this is why verse 24 is so important. So look there. Paul says, but those who are of Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh. This is so great. So listen close. The Bible says that you and I cannot make ourselves right before God because our problem is trying to make ourselves right. And so God came to make us right in Jesus. Like our natures are bent away from him. And so in Jesus, he came so that He could live the life that we couldn't, that one that is not just morally perfect, but perfectly dependent on God. And then to to bear the weight of our betrayal of God on the cross and then to rise again so that we could be made right. He did that to take our place. In other words, it was substitutionary. And when we place our faith in Jesus, when we look to him as our only hope, we're united to him. I cannot say this enough union with Jesus in being in Jesus is about what is true of him being true of us 
His perfect life becomes ours before God. Can you believe that? You know your life. I know mine. Lord have mercy. But before God, like his perfect life is ours. Like I know there's plenty of stuff going on in me that I don't want you to know better yet, God. And yet, God doesn't just accept us begrudgingly. What's true of Jesus becomes true of us. And when God says, this is my son in whom I am well pleased, that's true of you. That's true of me. But also Jesus' death becomes ours. His death for sin is our death for sin. Everything you have ever done or ever will do has been dealt with. Every wound you've inflicted, every imperfection you tried to mitigate or justify, every bit of arrogance that you have, that you have sought to, to kind of pretend wasn't there, it's all been answered for. In a real way, your flesh, that, that technical term that Paul uses for our natures that's been away in independence from God, has been crucified has been killed, has been dealt with. And what that means for us in plain terms is simply this. A definitive break has happened. And I think Christians today, especially in our tradition, need to hear this probably more than most. A definitive break has happened. We, especially in the kind of reformed tradition of which this church is a part, we are great with talking about how, how we're just sinners. We're sinners in need of grace. True. But what that doesn't mean is that change is impossible because a definitive break has happened. Will it be perfection in this life? No, it's, it's not one or zero. But a break has happened. In our theology, we call that definitive sanctification. That's why Paul can call the church in Corinth. Go read it. They were as jacked up as any church you will ever imagine. And he calls them the saints. In Corinth. They didn't sound like saints to me, but he calls them that. Why? Because a definitive break has happened. That means that you have not just been rescued from sin's penalty. Listen to me. Listen to me. You have not just been rescued from sin's penalty. You have been rescued from its power. It no longer has the power over you that it once did. And I know the experience, like my lived experience, Rick, is that I know that. But it's simply not true. That's simply a habit. <laughs> Sin is no longer the operative principle in your life, and that means change can happen. Now, I've said this before, and I'll say it again. Does that mean perfection? No, it doesn't. What it means is, is that as we change, we begin to learn how deep the problem actually goes. It's not just, and I know some of us are so stuck in one particular thing that we wrestle with that we can't seem to see beyond it. And we go, if I could just conquer this, I would know that ah, finally I'm, no, no, you don't understand. That thing is simply, it's like, it's like right here. And yes, maybe behaviorally that starts to go away. And what you see is that there's something else right here. And then there's something else right here. The, the problem is really deep. It's way worse than you think. And God is way more loving. So change can happen, but we said this doesn't happen externally. So how? Look at verse 25. Paul says, if you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Now that's a little cryptic, so let me explain what he means. So if the last was something that theologically we call 
a definitive sanctification. Like it was a clean break. That's all you really need to know. If you don't like the, the big words, don't worry about it. But it's a clean break. If that's definitive sanctification, this, what he's about to talk about, is progressive sanctification. It means growing more and more like Jesus throughout our lives, okay? So let's look at this sentence. If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. So first, it's a conditional sentence, right? There's a condition on it. First part is essential. If you live by the Spirit, we need to say this again. We need to keep the order correct. Christian change is a result of God's grace. It is not something you do to get it. Right? You don't keep in step with the Spirit so that you can live by the Spirit you live by the Spirit so that you can keep in step with Him. Okay? If you're already alive by the Spirit, if this is true of you, Paul says, then keep in step. Anything other than this is independence. I'll say it again. Anything other than that is independence, which the Bible would define as like that's sin. Okay? So what does it mean to keep in step? Well, it means what we talked about last week. It means living out the work that the Spirit is doing and has done in you. Did you notice that when Paul says that He's talking about the flesh being crucified. He says it it, it was crucified along with its passions and desires. That's super important because it pings off of what we talked about last week. It pings off of what he had just said a couple sentences ago. That the the flesh, this independent nature of ours, is desiring or over-desiring against the spirit. Just to say Christian change ultimately will happen on the level of motivation. Not just behavior. On the level of motivation. Keeping in step with the Spirit means desiring what the Spirit desires and then by faith that He's working in you, living that out, okay? Which means that, okay, listen close because this is, this is where you guys really want to know, okay, so how do I do this? It, what this means is not just thinking about what it is you do or what I do. It's about why do I do it? Like, why do I do it? Why do we gossip? Why do we constantly find ourselves looking at pornography? Why are we consistently having angry outbursts? Why do we obsess about our money? Or just constantly think about ourselves? Why? You see, that's where the gospel can produce change. We obsess about our money probably for one of two reasons. Either we think that it's our money that keeps us safe in life or it's our money that makes us somebody. What does the gospel say? The gospel says that we are somebody because God has rescued us in Jesus. And that is he rose from the dead, and just as he rose from the dead, he will raise you from the dead. And if he can raise you from the dead, what else can happen to you? Nothing. He keeps us safe. You know, we, we look at pornography because we want to feel strong, or we want to feel wanted, or we want to be adequate. We chase our desires thinking the next one will finally satisfy us. We are looking for something that can only come from Jesus, and that's where the gospel starts to really produce change. Listen, real change won't come by not doing those things. That's going to sound an awful lot like I'm saying, like, don't worry about what you do. That is not what I'm saying. I'm talking about it in the same way we talk about whack-a-mole, right? You whack the one mole down and another one pops up. If you don't turn off the device at the bottom, the moles are going to keep jumping up. It's the most frustrating game in the world. You can't win, right? Real change won't come by, you know, not looking at pornography, though that needs to happen. It needs to happen too. But it comes by looking to Jesus for the things that you're looking to those images for. 
Now, let me say two final things. Don't mistake me for saying that we are somehow completely passive in this. Or, probably worse, that because it's on the level of desire, until you feel like it, you don't really need to change. That is not what I'm saying, okay? And if, I, and if you're hearing that, it's my fault, okay? I'm not communicating right. Let's talk, and, and hopefully I can clarify that. The Bible is really big on holiness, really big on it, right? I'm going to give you a few quotes, you know, that, that we're supposed to be holy apart from which no one will see God, right? Like, the, it's really big on holiness, really big on us being who we were made to be okay so don't take this to mean that change is like well when I feel like it I can get around to it okay but lastly Christian change is about working on the level of desire and motivation and that is not easy right the proverbs say that the, the human heart is like deep waters and only the wise can draw those waters out I don't know why I do much of what I do and I've been working on this for a long time right? It's why we need help. It's why we need other people. It's why we need our family members. We have them. It's why we need our friends, especially close ones. It's why we need members of our life group. It's why we need to be part of a community and not just kind of spectators in this Christian thing. And sometimes it means we need to get professional help, and that's okay too. I'm doing it like it's not a big deal. We need someone to help us go, why do I do this? Why? Because I keep trying to change it, but I'm obviously not getting to why. And until I do, it just keeps changing on me. Community is so important. And this is why UPC has been about life groups. It's why the majority of the work that I'm doing here later in the summer and the fall is about, is about shoring up and trying to make those as excellent as we possibly can because community is that important. We need others to speak into our lives to help us ask and answer the question of why. And like I said, some of us are going to need help outside of a group. That is not shameful. That is courageous. Don't hesitate to seek help. Why? Because you weren't made for independence. You weren't made to do it yourself. Would you pray? Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that that is true. We thank you that you have not made us to be alone. In fact, you've made us for yourself. And our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. So God, I ask that you would help us to find our rest in you this morning. That as we go from this place, we might even, even this afternoon over lunch, just have a conversation about why it is that we keep doing what we're doing. And then have others perhaps help us, work in them, that they might help us apply the gospel to the why helps to do that because we want to be more like you and if we don't lord maybe we just want to want to be more like you so come and have mercy on us produce your fruit in us make us those kind of people we ask in jesus name amen